The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. again happy palm sunday to you for palm sunday we're finishing up the book of philippians so uh so if you've been here you know that's what we've been going through so if you have a bible go ahead and open it up to the book of philippians chapter four philippians chapter four we've been about two and a half months going through this book and we are wrapping it up today and the the title of our series has been choosing joy Because all along, we've looked at this life of Paul and the life that he's encouraging the Philippians to live in Jesus, as he even reflects on some of his own experiences. And we've seen how joy and finding the joy of Christ in life is not just a result of things going well, but it's a choice every single day that you and I have, regardless of our lives, is will we choose to live in this joy that Jesus has, that Jesus freely offers to all of us as his followers. And today we are going to be ending the series as Paul ends the book on what I think may be the hardest thing for some of us to find joy in. And one of the greatest areas that a lot of Christians need to grow in thinking, how do I find joy in this? And that's finding financial joy, finding joy in our resources, joy in our money. Now, because If the Bible went with how we think it would, this passage would read, if you follow Jesus, you will get more money and then you will be happy. And we'll be like, yes, thank you, Jesus. This is fantastic. That's not what the Bible says, right? The human mindset is what? Just give me some more money. That'll be more happiness. That'll mean more joy. And I'm good to go. But studies have shown, and if you're familiar with it all, that that's, that's not a linear equation. That's not how it works. And, and this idea of, of money bringing stress into our world and us needing to find joy in it is so readily apparent. Some studies that I've said, it's hard to figure out if it's accurate or not, but one study said that finances in the U.S. are the leading cause of stress. One survey said 73% of people are regularly experiencing stress over their financial situation. Actually goes the higher percentage, the younger you are. So Gen Z is the most stressed out about finances. Millennials are next and on and on. So it's not just people who are pushing retirement and figuring out, do I have enough? But this is all the way through, whether you're figuring out going to college or whether you're into your later stage of life, we all deal with financial stress. Many people cite the fact that the financial fights are the second leading cause of divorce after infidelity. That lots of arguments and strife in our relationships and in our marriages are due to disagreements on how we handle, how we view finances. And so the Bible offers us this unique picture of finding joy when it comes to money. And so our question today is, how, how can we choose joy when it comes to finances? How can we choose joy when it comes to money? Now, there's often, when we think about this topic, there's, there's kind of two extremes that find themselves in Christianity, in Christian churches, when it comes to the view of God and finances, or just money in general. And depending on your background and where you grew up, you, find, you probably found yourself in certain times of life tilting towards different ideologies that kind of creep into churches. One of these ideologies is what we could call prosperity theology. And that basic, simple teaching is this. The more spiritual you are, the more blessed you will be financially, right? And that any any income from God is a sign of spiritual blessing, meaning if you're not 
financially wealthy. If you're poor, your problem is you just need to trust God more. It's a spiritual issue. And then you just need to have more. But the problem is that that's not how the Bible works, right? That's clearly not the teaching of Scripture. In fact, um, if, if you go from that view that anyone who has spiritual maturity is also wealthy, it rules out a large part of people in Scripture. Most of the Old Testament prophets were likely very poor, men like Elijah and Elisha. In the New Testament, John the Baptist, Jesus is ruled out of it. Right? If your theology for spiritual maturity rules out Jesus, there's probably a problem with it, right? Because Jesus was homeless and going from place to place wasn't a man of great financial means. And so it's clear that spiritual maturity and financial prosperity do not go hand in hand. On the other hand, though, is, is what is called poverty theology. And that's basically this, this idea that it is wrong for Christians to assume any sort of wealth or to have anything nice in the world. That Christians actually, as a sign of Christianity, need to be living basically impoverished lives. And that if someone has something nice or makes a good income and doesn't give a huge, almost all of it away and live in poverty themselves, then they're not actually a spiritual person. They're not walking in spiritual maturity. The problem, again, is one that it does not line up with Scripture. We see men and women in the Bible of extreme financial means that God uses in an extraordinary way. And he doesn't say you're wrong because you're wealthy. Abraham, Solomon, Moses raised in the King Guard. Even this church, if you were here as we started the series and talked about it, one of the backbones of this church, the first convert, was a wealthy woman. And God used her means of wealth to help establish and start and most likely host this church. And so, so the Bible doesn't rule out and say that you have to give away everything and that living with some sort of success is a sign of spiritual immaturity at all. And the Bible offers this alternative view right kind of in between where prosperity and poverty theology align. Now, I hope, as is my prayer, that our church doesn't fall to either extreme, but I think it's, it's good for us to think through and reflect based on our upbringings, if you've been raised in church or been a part of Christianity for a while, where your natural leaning goes towards. Because I think all of us have a natural lean towards one side. For mine, it was towards poverty theology, that, that it was a sign that people shouldn't have nice things. And if someone drives a car with a certain logo, you're like, they should have given that money away instead. Like that was the natural mindset that I had growing up from some of the churches and religious background that I had. So that's my mindset that I need to correct and view what does the Bible actually say, not just what does my Christian culture say. So this morning, we're gonna jump in. Verse 10, Paul says this. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This first way to have financial joy in life is to learn the secret of contentment to learn the secret of contentment. 
Now, Paul ends this letter, and it's kind of awkward. Some, we're not sure why he ends it this way. He's kind of referenced it throughout, but he, he ends the letter again with a thanksgiving of their partnership with him and what he has been doing. This church, as we're going to continue to see, has faithfully, financially supported him. And he's saying, hey, listen, I rejoice greatly now that you've sent this gift with this man and he's returning the letter back to the church. I'm so thankful that you've continued to support me financially. But before he starts to think that, that he was like, oh man, I really was needing this. I was not happy. I had no joy. I was desperate until your letter came, until your gift came. By the way, it's, it's important for us to remember culturally as Paul is here in prison, that prison back then and how their system worked was different than it is now, right? Now it is a taxpayer-supported system. If you go to prison, you're not likely thinking, where are my meals going to come from? You're probably complaining about the quality of the food, not if it's going to come. Back in this time, if you were arrested and went to prison and someone didn't take care of you, you're probably going to die. That was just how it was. People had to reach out and support you. It was on family. It was on others to support and take care of you in your imprisonment. And he wants to make sure that he's like, hey, listen, I'm very thankful that you gave, but I was just as joyful before you gave as well. I wasn't here despondent. I wasn't neglecting Jesus and thinking that God doesn't provide for me before. He said, not that I'm speaking of being in need, but I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. See, Paul gives us here a few insights as to what contentment is and how it looks like, what it looks like in our life. First, he points out here from his own experience that contentment is not based on circumstances. Contentment in our life is not based on the circumstances in which we find ourselves. He says this, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content in any situation. Now, there's even from his reflections, there's moments of Paul's life where he likely experienced financial blessing, where he was well off. Maybe this is referring to part of his childhood. Maybe this is referring to himself before his conversion. This maybe even has been part of his journey of, of planning churches. Scholars often wonder if this is even a passing reference to his time in Philippi, where he was with wealthy believers and was privileged. There was hardship there, but he was not wondering where his meals were going to come from. He said, there's been times where I've lived the financially good life, where it was stable and sound and everything was good. And then he points out, and I know how to be brought low. That it's not all just been up and to the right. There have been challenging moments, Paul says, in my life. In the book of 2 Corinthians, he goes into a little more detail, lest we think we, we get this picture of Paul. Like, Paul doesn't really know what financial hardship is like. He's, he's lived the good life. Paul kind of gives us this, this break into his life in 2 Corinthians 11. He says this, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robber, robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger at false brothers. I think he was in danger. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. He said, I haven't lived some cushy life. He's like, I know what it's like to be adrift at sea, to be cold, to have no place to sleep, to be hungry, to have nothing to eat. And he says, even in those situations, I've learned to be content. See, the, the lie that we tell ourselves when it comes to contentment is contentment will come after the next thing, right? Contentment is always this next 
thing else, right? It's the next promotion and then I'll be content in my career. It's the next raise and then I'll be happy with my income. It's the next house and then I'll be happy with the living that God has for me. It's the next relationship and that's what will bring me satisfaction. It's the next, and we can put the next whatever we want in, but we are so good at convincing ourselves that we will be content after the next thing is fulfilled. But we all know what happens after that's fulfilled. There's another next that comes next. Right? We always just keep filling in next. If our contentment is based on circumstances, we will never be content. And Paul says, no, contentment is not just based on the circumstances. If your life's good or if it's really difficult right now, it's not, it's not based on that. Secondly, he shows us and points out here that contentment is actually learned. Contentment is something that is learned within our lives. Verse 12, he says, I have learned the secrets of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What he's saying by learned is he's reminding us that this is not the natural bent of the human heart. Right? You will not naturally drift into being a content person with where God has placed you, content in areas of your life. You have to learn. It takes hard work and hard discipline going against your mind and the culture to get there. If you don't believe this, just try and take an iPad from a toddler and you'll learn what discontentment is real quick. Right? Anyone in here, all the parents of toddlers are like, oh my goodness, that is so true. Right, like my my sweet Aria, she's almost three years old. She is ninety nine percent of the time the sweetest, nicest, biggest smile, most fun girl. And then once in a while, we'll she'll have an iPad and we'll let her play or watch something on it. And when you go and take that thing away, it's as if we're killing her. The tears, the screams, the attitude. It's like, child, I just watched you play for like thirty minutes, an hour. You were certainly happy, and I told you that's going to end. You knew it was going to end but you're not content with an ending, right? You need more. And, and our hearts are bent towards always wanting more, towards not being content in our situations. Especially in our time, in our world, everything in our culture pushes us against being content, right? The advertising agencies of our world, how the tech industry runs is on ads, so much of it, right? What is their main thing? To make you subtly discontent with what you have. So you get home and you're like, I don't know why I think I need a new car, but I think I do. And everyone's like, oh, we know why you need a new car, right? I don't know why I feel like I just need to go shopping and buy a whole bunch of things from Macy's and Nordstrom's. And the TV's like, oh, we know why you do, right? That, That everything is out to make you think that I need something else. And it's a learned behavior to think, no, no, I I actually don't. How did Paul learn contentment? Well, he had to learn it through experience. That his life and his relationship with Jesus didn't change if he had a lot or if he had a little. And he had to do some, I think, self-reflection that so often is missing from our own lives. And I know it's often missing from my life to realize like, hey, if I actually stopped and thought about, will that make me happy? I know that it won't, but I can convince myself in the moment, right? I I can still tell myself, oh no, that's what I need. That's what I need. But we need to learn and we need to experience and look back at our own lives to learn that contentment is something that not, doesn't just come from our circumstances, but we need to learn it. Finally, and this is where he's leading to, it's impossible to have contentment until we realize that contentment is only found in Christ. Contentment is only found in a relationship with Jesus. 
It's the climax of this whole section that he's been getting to. I've learned this secret, this, this secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Verse 13, which is one of the most quoted verses in scripture. I can do all things through him or through Christ who strengthens me. This verse is perhaps the most misapplied verse of scripture in the entire world. My apologies to anyone who had it on their coffee mug as they drank coffee this morning, right? Like, when do we see this? We would expect this when the March Madness tournament ends tomorrow and the champion raises the trophy, right? I can do all things through Jesus who gives me strength, right? We, we see it in signs of victory, people proclaiming this over their life after they get the promotion. They win the thing, whatever success comes. Why? Oh, it's because I can do all things. But, but we need to read this verse in the context of the letter and in context with the verses right before it. He's saying, I've learned the secret of being content, of doing all things. Well, how is it that I can do all things through Jesus who strengthens me? I can even be content. I can do all things through Jesus who strengthens me, even be content in hardship. I can do all things through Jesus who strengthens me, even be content when I have a lot, not needing more. I can do all things through Jesus who strengthens me. Thinking of it in the context is why if you're reading from an NIV this morning, they have actually translated it, I can do all this through Christ who strengthens me. Because it's referring back to being content in good and to bad. It's not talking about your successes and all these great things. Oh, look what I did because Jesus gave me strength. No, it's, it's I can learn to be content even in this. He says this is a secret. That's kind of like a funny way to say it because this is, if it's a secret, it's a very open secret, right? This isn't the only passage in the Bible that talks about the power of contentment in our lives. Paul elsewhere writes in 1 Timothy 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we, can take, we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. How do we learn the secret of contentment in our lives? I think it's impossible to learn until we experience somewhat of life like Paul. That there's times where we have a lot and there's times when we have a little. I'll never forget the quote. I don't remember who said it, but it certainly isn't me. We don't realize Jesus is all we need sometimes until Jesus is all we have. We don't realize sometimes that Jesus is all we need. We're content in him alone until Jesus is all we have. And God wants us to understand the power of contentment in our lives. And so what does he so often do when we are practicing discontentment? He will chip away at those things that we're seeking after. This is why in our mindset as followers of Jesus, suffering is transformative because it's through hardship and suffering that God's exposing those idols of our hearts and of our lives that we're saying this, this brings fulfillment, this brings contentment, this brings meaning, this brings purpose. And as God will chip those things away from our hearts, we need to learn the lesson of our life that, man, we, we don't need anything other than Jesus. For Paul, he said, listen, I, I've lived a lot of life. Some's been good, some's been very hard. But in all of it, I learned all I need is Jesus. When we have that mindset, 
And to think of it through that lens, it transforms how we think about things. That whether we get the promotion or not, whether we lose our job or keep it, whether the market goes up or the market goes down, we have Jesus and that's all we truly need. And through him, we can do all things because he gives us strength even to be content where he has placed us. So contentment is this key to unlocking this this financial joy in our lives. He continues with the next one in verse 14 through 18. He says this, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. The second way to experience joy when it comes to our money is to practice generosity. To practice generosity. Now, generosity, when we think about it, is at the heart of the gospel. Generosity is at the heart. If you're a follower of Jesus, generosity is at the heart of the God you serve. We sang it in that last song this morning, the most well-known verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave. It's the heart of the gospel that we serve a generous God, that God has given of himself, that he gave his one and only son. That's what we celebrate all the time. That's what we specifically celebrate this upcoming week at Easter, that God loved us so much. He gave, he was generous towards us. And so as followers of Jesus, generosity must cultivate in our hearts as well if we're walking with him and want to experience this kind of joy that that we can experience in life when it comes to money. Now, what happens? He highlights here three things. What happens in our lives when we lean into this? When we start to practice generosity and freely giving to others, and Paul specifically here is talking about freely and openly giving into the work of God. Right? He's not just saying that he walked that this church is walking around and helping others. That's good. And we can be generous in specific situations. But he's specifically are talking about that you've supported the work of the gospel that God has been doing through me in our world. So what happens when we, instead of holding on to our money and seeing it as our start to practice generosity towards the work of God that he's doing in the church and the missionaries in our world. The first thing that happens is that we experience gospel partnership. We experience gospel partnership. And Paul talked about this right at the beginning when he says that you are partners with me in the gospel. And he says it here again, it was kind of you to share in my troubles. No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except for you. He's he's reminding them that, hey, you've probably heard and I've probably written and told you about the work of God that God in this time was doing all over the Middle, the Middle East and, and Europe, right? The, the gospel is starting to explode. He says, listen, you may have never left the city of Philippi, but you're playing a role in what God is doing in the world. Because the gospel couldn't do what it's doing. It couldn't go forth unless you were being generous and helping me. And God has used you in an incredible way beyond just where you are to expand the gospel and that your financial resources have multiplied into saves lives that will result in eternal glory to God. And it's the same for us now. 
That when we practice generosity, our money goes beyond ourselves and our own sphere of influence. And we get support and partner with the gospel work that God is doing here in Morgan Hill in the area and around the world. And we are generous with the financial resources that God has given us. It's not the only way that we get to partner with the gospel and partner with what God has called us with, but it is a significant way that we get to bless and be real partners in the work that God is doing in the world. So the first good thing is that we see gospel partnership. The second is that actually leads to increased fruitfulness in our lives. When we practice generosity, it leads to increased fruitfulness in our lives. Notice what he says. Not in verse 17, not that I seek the gift. Again, he's like, I'm content. Whether you send money or not, I am content. Not that I'm seeking the gift, but what I seek is the fruit that increases to your credit. The fruit that increases not to my credit, but to your credit because you've trusted God and you've been generous with your financial resources. This is why I pray regularly for our church to be a generous church. This is why I pray all the time, God, would you more and more cultivate the hearts of everyone who's at Morgan Hill Bible Church to be generous, to practice the same kind of generosity that you have practiced towards us. The heart of why I as a pastor pray for this, and I know this is true of our elders as well, it's not because we have a budget cycle coming up. It's not because we look at inflation and we're like, oh gosh, we got to help people are more generous because look at what it is, right? It's not, our heart is not like, oh man, we want people to be generous so we have more money to spend on good things. The heart of why I hope that you can capture this, this thing about generosity is the spiritual fruit that it unlocks in your life. That when you start to practice it, it's not just that the church is blessed and you get to partner and God's work will do more, but you will be amazed to see the spiritual fruit in your life when you step out in trust in this area of your life and practice generosity. And my heart for you to be generous isn't because we have a budget. It's not because of money concerns. My heart to be generous as your pastor is I want you to walk with God and to see all that he has for you. And when you're withholding your money from him, when you're not practicing generosity, you're not experiencing all that God has for you. And something happens as we start to practice generosity that fruitfulness starts to grow in our lives. We start to see God work, see God provide in other areas of our life that we never had before. And he's saying, listen, I'm so glad that you gave because your fruit is going to grow. It blesses me, yes, but your fruit is going to grow because of your generosity. The third thing that happens when we practice generosity, as we see in verse 18, is we actually worship God. That practicing generosity is seen as worship to God. Now, there's Old Testament imagery here that's very rich in verse 18. And if you've ever read through the Old Testament sacrificial systems, this will pique your interest real quick. You'll pick this up. When he talks about the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. We shouldn't there think like, oh, what did they send him if it smells good? Was it like some perfume that they sent along with? Like, you don't read that too literal, being like, what smelled so good that they sent it to Paul that he's so thankful for? But throughout the Old Testament sacrificial system, a sacrifice that is pleasing to God is often described as a pleasing aroma, a pleasing smell to God. And Paul is picking up on this language. The significance of this is actually seen in one of the other instances where Paul applies this same phrase, these same terminology in the New Testament. And it's in Ephesians chapter five that Paul encourages that church. He says, walk in love 
as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's powerful imagery that, that the same words that he's saying, the worship that Jesus giving of himself and dying on the cross, that same imagery is described as Christians are generous with their money and give it back to God to support the work that he is doing. Now, I think we so often miss this part of worship with our lives because we have this short-circuited view of what worship as a follower of Jesus looks like, right? We, we sometimes think that worship is what happens when we're here on Sundays, right? Like we worship when we're gathered together and we do. That's an important part of worship. Maybe like worship is also what happens when I'm in my car and I play a Hillsong or Elevation music. And if like me, you can't sing very well, you turn up really loud so you can sing loud and not hear yourself, right? Like that's worship. Yes, that is also worship. But worship is a full life response in response to what all of what God has done for you. That as a follower of Jesus, all of life is to be worship. And if that's true, that includes our finances as well. And so the question is, are we worshiping with our wallets? Are we worshiping God with the resources, the money that he's given to us? Because he describes that this isn't just something that you do for me. This isn't something you do that is spiritual fruit for you. But by doing this, you are actually practicing worship to God. The reality is this, if we aren't worshiping with our finances, it's probably because we are worshiping our finances. If you don't worship with your finances, it's probably because you worship money. And it's too hard for you to give up any of your hard-earned money that you need to, to give back to anyone else besides yourself. That it so often exposes that in our hearts. I just don't know how it's possible for us to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor if we love ourselves and us not to be generous people. I just don't think it's possible that when we worship, when you worship, if you give and you're generous, when you give online, whether that's here in person, when you give, that is just as much worship as when you pray, as when you sing, that it's a pleasing aroma, it's acceptable to God, that he sees that in your life as worship to who he is and what he has done for you. And we need to realize that practicing generosity expands the gospel. It increases fruitfulness in our own lives. And it actually is a way that we worship God with all that we are because of all that he has done for us. The third way that we practice this kind of joy in our finances is seen as Paul ends the letter. He says this in verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with, you, be with your spirit. The third way to experience this kind of joy in finances is that we all need to grow in trusting God. To experience joy in our life when it comes to our finances, we need to grow in trusting God. Verse 19, he, he sums up this whole argument and this whole conversation about their generosity, their giving, with this reminder. My God, your God, our God, will supply every need of yours, how according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, of course, what we need to recommend, or what we need to see right away is my God will supply every need, right? And we all know that there's often a huge dichotomy between what we need and what we want, 
right? Any parent gets this real quick. Mom, I need this. No, you don't. Dad, I need that you don't need anything. Like, calm down, right? Like, but, but we, we have the same attitude towards God. This is what I need. And God's like, no, you don't. No, you don't. That's what you want. But tell me, what, that's not what you actually need. And so often our frustration when it comes to this area of life is because God doesn't meet our wants, right? I want this. I want this. I want this. And God's like, I don't care. I'm not going to give that to you. That's not what you need. That's not what's going to help you grow towards me. I'm not, why would I bless you with that when you're making that your idol, when you're making that your God? Now, it's, we also have to pause and think here. When, God, when it says God will supply every need of yours, is he simply also, is he just talking about material possessions or is Paul now expanding this idea of God's provision to more? See, what, what he's addressing here, and we need to stop and think about this and stop thinking just to an American mindset. Right? How does someone who's living in a third world country who's destitute, where people regularly die because of malnutrition and lack of of common resources, how do they read this? Do they read this as God not providing for them? Because that that would be easy to read it that way. So so what is is he saying? Because that was common in this ancient world, that famines and things like this would regularly wipe out huge parts of people. What does it mean that God will supply every need of ours? Well, when we think of it, if he's doing it according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus, what does that phrase mean? What are the riches of glory in Christ Jesus? That phrase often and almost always refers to the salvation that we have in Jesus. Ephesians 2.7 says this, so that in the coming ages, he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with financial blessings. He's saying, God will give you all you need. He'll save you and offer you salvation no matter what your circumstances are. And so even if we experience needs that God doesn't meet, financial needs that we think God needs to meet, that he doesn't, he still takes care of our souls. He still guards our hearts, that Jesus is still with us, that nothing in our material world could take that away. We need as followers of Jesus constantly to grow in trusting that God will supply every need of ours. See, the essence of spiritual maturity is growing in trust with God. And it's essence because our needs and what we need to grow in is always is always moving. It's always arriving, right? You never fully arrive in trusting God with your finances because the things are always changing, right? Like, okay, God, I trust you with my finances. Kids show up, college comes, you get fired, retirement comes, right? It's an ever moving target. None of us can say I've arrived. I now trust God with my finances and it's not a struggle for me. No, because you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. There are challenges always on the horizon. And the thing is for all of us to always be growing in our trust that God has all he needs, that we are in God's hands and that is enough. This is a huge challenge that God has been teaching me personally the last several months. Um, Several months ago, my wife and I were, were extremely blessed and fortunate to be able to buy a house here in the area. We want to stay in this area for a long time and God made it. The provision was there. And so, so we went and bought a house. And what that happened is we were renting and our rent was still like halfway through. So we had still six months or so on the rent. And so we called up our landlord. He said, hey, that's no problem. This is a hot market. Everyone wants to move here. We'll get it rented right away. And as long as someone rents it, you'll be off the hook. I'm like, great, no problem, right? So we do the one month where you pay for your house and you pay for the rent. If you've ever done that, you're like, oh, this is painful, right? Like you're like, that's that, okay, that, okay. But that's just one month. I, I knew it. We were living in both while we were moving. That's good. People kept coming to look at the house that we were living in to rent, and no one was renting it. 
and no one was renting it. And what was I telling God? God, you need to provide a renter for this house. And what does God say? You need to trust me. And I was like, no, 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 no. But this is my money, God. Do you know how much this will cost me if this doesn't get rented? And I still remember I, I was driving and God, God just hit me. He's like, listen, you preach all the time about trusting me. Are you actually going to do it yourself? And I was like, oh, I don't want to though. It's hard. And I wish you'd be like, oh yeah. But guess what? There was another month where we had to pay rent on a house sitting empty. And I was like, oh, this is hard. And God's like, do you trust me? Will I not provide? Will I not make a way for you. Now, thankfully, it only was one month. Someone else is moving in soon, so I don't have to do it for ongoing, praise God. But, but he hit hard. Like, what, why was my response that way? And you can ask my wife, my response to my Lord, I wanted to call him up and chew him out. Kristen's like, nothing good happens if you yell at him. Like, calm down. Why was I so angry? Because it was hitting at something in my life that I didn't trust God in. If I had trusted God, I wouldn't have responded in anger. But God was chipping away at my heart. Being like, okay, you say you trust me, but what if I do something that doesn't make sense to you and it's gonna cost you money? Well, what if I do then? Do you still trust me? See, the reality is if we don't trust God with our money, we don't trust God. We just trust God with the things that we want him to do. If we don't trust God, even in times where it doesn't make sense to us, we don't trust God. So will you choose to practice joy Will you choose joy in one of the most stressful areas of life for Christians? Will you choose joy when it comes to your finances? Will you learn to be content in our discontented world? Will you learn to practice generosity? Will you learn to grow in your trust in God that he will provide for us? God, we thank you that at the heart of the gospel is a generous God who sends his son to die for us. God, would you cultivate and teach us the heart of Christ in this area? God, would you teach us what it means to be content? God, I know some of us are so frustrated by circumstances, by things in our life. We live so discontented lives sometimes. God, would you teach us, do whatever you need to do to teach us that you are enough, that you are enough for us? God, would you cultivate in our hearts generosity, cultivate trust in you so that we would see the spiritual fruit grow, that we would see the work of the gospel grow, God, that we can partner with what you're doing in our worlds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.